This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. On October 14th, the SEC released its Report on Equity and Options Market Structure Conditions in Early 2021, better known as the GameStop Report. The SEC's report is just one more piece of evidence to support market structure reforms, Ty Galosh told the New York Times, but it is obviously a heavily negotiated document, he added. It was never going to break new ground. Fiery comments from our friend Ty Galosh. Long-term listeners will have heard Ty's name once or twice on the show, and practitioners and policymakers in the securities regulatory space recognize Ty as a leading capital markets policy expert. We're going to chat with Ty about the GameStop report and all it portends today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you again, buddy. I think this one is in the wonky bucket. I've got to say, we're going to be talking about order flow and, oh man, all kinds of statistics and findings that came out of the GameStop report. But hey, it's fun. We're finally diving into meme stock mania. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about market structure on the Insecurities podcast off and on for a couple of years now. Uh, And in a bizarre twist of fate, thanks to GameStop, AMC, and some of these other meme stocks, market structure issues have become, to borrow a phrase from political campaigns, kitchen table topics. Bizarrely, I think that's true. People are actually chatting at home. I mean, I I know I've, I've overheard conversations recently with some of my buddies where they're talking about some of these order flow and market structure issues, and I'm like, man... Really? This is what we're talking about? You know, while we're while we're playing golf or whatever, it's crazy. Um, as I as I mentioned up top, the SEC has recently released a report that explains just what happened in January 2021 and maybe into February 2021, and unpacks some of the market structure issues uh, that those events implicate. It's a dense 45-page report. It covers a lot of ground. And as I said, we've got just the right person to help us break it all down today. That's right. We're joined by our good friend Ty Galosh and and Kurt. You know, we are we are very wonky, and it's great to have Ty on. But I think we're being a little bit fresh too, right? In terms of the timing of this episode, and and for us, you know, Ty is someone that we've interacted with a lot, both uh, you know on Twitter and and through social media, and and also uh, prior to this podcast, had recorded a studio briefing, a one hour briefing with PLI. Uh, along with our other good friend, uh, J.W. Verrett, back in September of 2020. So we'll say half a pandemic ago, we'll call it. Uh, that briefing was entitled Trading in Markets, the Regulation of U.S. Stock Exchanges. And funny enough, we talked about some of those uh, market structure issues, some of those plumbing issues back in the day. So want to give you guys a brief background on Ty. He is a securities regulatory policy expert. Uh, his opinions and insights are frequently sought out by regulators, those on Capitol Hill, participants in the market, and those covering stocks in the press. For you listeners who don't know, Ty, he is the executive director of Healthy Markets, an investor-first nonprofit focused on educating market participants and promoting data-driven reforms to market structure challenges. You can check them out at healthymarkets.org. Before joining Healthy Markets, Ty served as counsel in the U.S. Senate and as counsel to SEC Commissioner Kara Stein. Ty was also previously a general counsel at a boutique investment bank, as well as experienced in private practice with Mayor Brown. But most importantly, Ty, is your high school pedigree. As Ty and I went to the (laughs) same high school, albeit a few years apart, uh, the Webster Schrader alumni are strong on this podcast, hailing from Rochester, New York. So, Ty, we're glad to have you and welcome to Insecurities. Thanks. Glad to be here, guys. All right. So before we jump into it with Ty, uh, just a little more background on the GameStop report. Just want to level set for all our listeners out there. Uh, by the time you are listening to this, the report will have been out for a few weeks. Uh, as I mentioned, the report was called a report on equity and options market structure conditions in early 2021. 
It really focuses on some of the trading activity we saw in GameStop and some of the other famous meme stocks in January and February 2021. Uh, I think the report actually refers to GameStop as the most famous of the meme stocks, which I don't know if you want to put that on a banner, but it's infamous, famous, <laughs> right? one yeah, of those. Sure. <laughs> uh, according to the press release announcing the publication of the report, in January, so-called meme stocks experienced a dramatic increase in their share price as bullish sentiments of individual investors started trending on social media, most notably on the subreddit Wall Street Bets or WSB. By the end of January, several retail brokers temporarily prohibited certain activity in some of these stocks and options, largely because of, and the SEC ticks off a few causes here, uh, large price moves, large volume changes, large short interest, frequent Reddit mentions, and significant coverage in the media. Because the meme stock phenomenon raises important market structure questions, the staff's GameStop report seeks to provide an overview of the equity and options market structure and focuses on the forces that maybe caused a brokerage to restrict trading. Digital engagement practices, this is like Chair Gensler's favorite new thing to talk about, uh, and payment for order flow or PFOF. Trading in dark pools and wholesalers, let's think about that as off exchange trading, and the market dynamics of short selling. To put it mildly, the report got mixed reviews in terms of its findings and recommendations, at least. I think many were underwhelmed, saying it really said nothing new. We'll, we'll find out what Ty has to think about that. I'm, I'm sure he has a view. He's been all over the story since day one. I did a quick Google. Ty, I think you've been quoted in about 147 articles about GameStop. Um, <laughs> not, not to mention, you know, some of the publications that have come through healthy markets. So, like I said, you're you are the guy to talk about this topic. Yeah, this is the moment, right? I've been toiling in in obscurity on market structure issues for now <laughs> 18 years of my legal career. Actually, in a former life, I actually was deeply involved for representing broker dealers and negotiating their arrangements on order routing and 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 investment advisors on their order routing and broker selection. So this is the time. And I wish it was a <laughs> I, I wish it actually was a little bit better. But Let's go back and, and sort of explore actually what happened. Some of this is going to be informed by what we've seen in the press. One of the things I'd note on the GameStop report is this is a staff report. It's not a commission report. It's not done by the five commissioners. They didn't vote on it. This is a staff released report. And the idea is if you're a staffer and you have very diverse opinions of five bosses, first off, you have five bosses, then they have very different views on what policy should be. And the quickest way to really become a former staffer is to decide <laughs> that you are going to break new policy ground or somehow go out on a big limb, particularly if you have a very strongly uh, opinionated and very informed chair. And so one of the things I think we were really expecting is this report to be about as bloodless as you could imagine on something that is extraordinarily volatile, which is the stock market going to the moon and back and, you know, rocket ship emojis. And so one of the things I think we found out is that we've learned a lot more from the press than we learned from this report. The report also yeah. doesn't have recommendations. Again, not shocking because you would rather, as a staffer, have your bosses negotiate what they want those recommendations to be. They're the ones who have to vote to propose rules and finalize them. And you want them to be the ones who have to go justify that before Congress. Because let's be clear, Congress has already had at least four hearings on this that were dedicated to this phenomenon, and they're going to be more. There's also been legislation in the House and now introduced in the Senate that's related to this. So if you're a staffer, your job, get in, get out, don't get shot. And I think that that's the <laughs> approach that they took to this report. So now we've got what actually happened. Look, it's clear. A bunch of people started trading GameStop and they've started saying, this is the greatest thing. We're going to ride this to the moon. And what's notable about GameStop is it's remarkably unnotable. You know, right. we, we've all driven by those retail outlets. Usually the paint is chipped or it's that spot in the mall that nobody ever went to that says, we're going to sell you video games, and who needs that, right? 
And so people are saying like, look, this is a downtrodden company. Let's all pile in. Now, why did people pile in? Who knows? And there are a million reasons. Those are psychological. Those are, there may be digital engagement practices. Were people being nudged? Were people being encouraged on Twitter? Was this fighting back against the man and Wall Street interests shorting a stock? It could be any and all of those things. A couple of things we do know. Some very sophisticated market participants made a lot of money. Some very sophisticated ones lost a lot of money. And so we also know that options trading went up quite a bit. So one of the things we have to recognize is this is a not very liquid stock. It's not an S&P 500. This isn't a big company. It has wide spreads generally, and the options trading also went up. And this seems to be true with, with all of the meme stocks. And if we think about what they have in common, they tend to be less popular stocks. They tend to be the ones that people generally don't think highly of. You know, prior to GameStop last summer, we had Hertz. As Hertz was mm-hmm. circling the drain of bankruptcy, the stock price went through the moon. What? That's not usually something you see with equity shareholders. So one thing we've we've noticed is that for a certain set of stocks that are generally less popular companies, not mainstream sort of heavily traded stocks, they're not S&P 500 stocks, we see the, the stock price go up as a lot of people pile in. We've seen options trading go up. And then what happens? So what happens just going to, for Robinhood, for example, is they have a lot of lower dollar accounts. Um, I think they said that their median or mean is $240, which is not a lot. And their average age was, I think, 31, which is, again, lower than most brokers. Mm-hmm. And so... They have a lot of people who are piling in to GameStop. And what that does is for market plumbing purposes, the broker, Robinhood, has to be able to make sure that their customers show up with the money to buy the stock. And that doesn't happen for a couple of days. And so when you have a lot of customers who are not terribly wealthy, not terribly old, that are new traders... And they're trading an extremely volatile stock. It's not surprising, for example, that a clearinghouse would say, we're a little worried that your customers might not show up with the money in a few days. And they got a margin call. And it was billions of dollars. And if you're Robinhood, if you're any broker dealer, and you get a margin call for billions of dollars, that's a big deal. They didn't have the money. That makes it a much bigger deal. Because we now have millions of Robinhood customers that could, in fact, be hurt by their broker-dealer failing. They might have fractional shares. They might have cryptocurrencies. Who knows what goes on? So Robinhood quickly did two things. One, they stopped buying, which really upset their customers. And they also raised as much money as they possibly could. They raised more than $3 billion, essentially overnight, to make sure that they could meet the margin call. And that gave rise to a huge number of conspiracy theories and congressional outrage, because essentially you had a number of customers who were said that they couldn't buy stock at their broker, and they were stopped. And we also had um, a large broker-dealer in terms of large number of customers, retail customers, potentially fail. And so that's where the investigations from Congress and the investigations by the SEC really focused. I noticed you didn't mention fundamentals among the the list of reasons people were buying here. I mean, I know I was I was listening to a, a podcast with our friends over at IEX a couple of weeks ago, and they had a couple of the a couple of the so called uh, uh, they call themselves apes on right talking about what they were doing back in January and February. And look, I mean, I think they they would argue that the folks that were maybe driving some of this mania actually had had good fundamental reasons for. For the investing, so I, I don't know how you feel about that tie, but it's interesting. I think there's more than one more than one reason at play here. Absolutely, and I think what's what's interesting is look when when you have cryptocurrencies which deliberately have essentially no fundamental underlying value. There's no company. There's no thing there going above sixty thousand dollars, and you have Tesla saying we don't care about price to earnings ratios and and stock values going frankly, to the moon outside of meme stocks. 
you have to question what what does fundamental analysis look like and does that apply here? So there are absolutely some reasons why some folks may say, look, this stock price is undervalued. I also don't think too many of those people would say that uh, GameStop, for example, is worth $250 a share. And that, that, you know, finding a line between zero and 250 is probably where there is a valuation that would make sense. And different people would come to different determinations as to what that is. But I think we have to recognize that this is more than an investment phenomenon. This is a trading phenomenon, right? So I've got a, I've got a 20-something nephew. He is he 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 bought. Um, he also had a Robinhood account. He bought some of the meme stocks. He wasn't buying them to be a fundamental holder, a long-term holder of those yeah. securities because he's thinking that he's going to hold on to them for the next ten <laughs> or fifteen or twenty years, right? He bought a tenth of a share and then bought another tenth of a share and then bought two and a half shares uh, of of another stock because. He thinks they're going up in value. From his perspective, this is little more than going to a casino and betting on red or black. Yeah. It's, a, it's a momentum play. Yeah, right. If that. And I think from his perspective, for $20 a pop, why not? We would yeah. clearly happily welcome him at any casino. There's one right here in Pittsburgh that would happily let him place a bet for $20. So why not? And why not do something that he can feel good about, that is new and exciting, that he has never thought about before? And that really raises some questions, because if we take a look at the stocks themselves and the options and the other instruments that are being traded, it's why, what is the, what are the incentives? Why are individuals doing it? But then the question is, why are the market participants engaged here, right? Like this almost killed Robinhood. At the same time, it got them to open more new accounts than they had ever opened before. So at the same time, it's a it's a embarrassment of riches, but it almost kills you, right? So we have to think about what are the incentives for market participants to be here? And I think we've actually seen some significant changes to behavior, and we're also likely to see some significant policy changes very, very quickly because of it. Well, I guess, uh, you know, to me, Ty, it's... It's such an interesting intersection between psychology and market fundamentals. And, and those are both wild overgeneralizations of the ideas at play. But, you know, I think about it back at when when we were growing up, again, to reference Rochester, New York, and getting that that Buffalo Bills starter jacket, right? It was like participating. You wanted to be a part of that club with the rest of, with the rest of Greater Webster, uh, regardless of where you thought that starter jacket would go up in value or not. But I know of folks that are are buying and selling stocks to kind of participate with their social group, right? Hey, all my buddies got into to stock ABC, so I want to be in on it too. All of those investment techniques, we'll call them, right? Even though they may not be seen as as kind of standard practice, are really starting to to intersect with the market in a meaningful way. And I'm nervous, you know. First off, for finance professors, right, in the next 15 years, how do you teach this? You know, where do you where is your price to earnings ratio? Where is your your fundamental analysis that comes into that? But I don't know if we're going to see, and, and I was trying to think back over the past 20 or 30 years, where such a decentralized market activity was so centralized on a single stock or set of stocks, it really drove drove kind of the market. I thought back to you know kind of the, the dot-com bubble, right? Everybody wanted to get in on an internet stock and, and kind of drove it up again, regardless of how, how strong or, or um, you know, solid those companies were from a technical or a fundamental perspective. So- I don't know. Beanie if Babies, got, Chris. Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies is another great one. Starter jackets, <laughs> Beanie Babies, and, and uh, Pets.com. Uh, they all come together. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about some of those psychological or those kind of social networks? Kurt referenced the Wall Street Bets. We don't have to get into individual people's Reddit handles here because that's not appropriate for our podcast. But how do you see that playing out, not only in, in kind of the GameStop lens, but into the future? I mean, these things aren't going anywhere. Well, yeah. So you have two different... Uh, I call it ecosystems. One is what I'll call the intermediary, the broker dealers, the the market makers who are trading against co- retail customers' orders. They have their set of incentives. And in fact, their set of incentives align with the social media folks who are directly or indirectly encouraging trading. And I'll just start with the the intermediary incentives because I think they're inextricably related. So let's just start with market makers. 
If you buy and sell securities all day, you want to buy low and sell high, or maybe sell high first and buy low later. And as it turns out, market makers make more the wider the spread. So if a stock, you can buy it at 10 and it's and someone's willing to sell it at 1010, that is a 10 cent spread. If the that becomes a 20 cent spread, a 30 cent spread, the market maker, the person in the middle who's matching buyers and sellers makes more money. Right? And so as it turns out, those market makers, retail market makers in particular, like Citadel, for example, because they've made it into the news, will acknowledge they make more money that way. So when you have stocks that are extremely volatile, those spreads are wider. When you have stocks outside of, say, the S&P 500, those spreads are wider. When you trade options, those spreads are wider. So the market makers prefer retail customers to be trading in stocks that have wide spreads. There's more profitability for them. As it turns out, the way our incentive structure works for broker-dealers with something called payment for order flow, those market makers will do what I think Doug Sifu has called a profit share, all right? They will pay for the access to those orders so that they can capture that big wide spread. And so when they're paying the brokers, as it turns out, like Robinhood had negotiations where they were getting paid more the wider the spread, the more their market maker would make, the more they would make. And so what you have is a system that says, hey, we are incentivized for you, our retail customers, to be trading less liquid stocks, more volatile stocks, more options. Now, if you're in that business, if you're in a retail broker-dealer business, what do you do? You know you make more money if your customers trade more illiquid, more volatile, and more options. So how do, you, how do you implement that? Do you do that by nudging them, sending emails? Do you do that by have, posting up, you know, these are our customers, more of our customers have these accounts. These are the one, these are the accounts that are trading today. These are the securities that are trading today. You have that type of incentive thing. And that's where Chair Gensler calls it digital engagement practices. Is that recommending a stock, right? Where, where in there is a line? Is it confetti? We call it gamification people. You know, is it confetti if you buy it? Is it saying, is it in cryptocurrencies? By the way, when we look at where um, brokers make most of their money, obviously it is in retail brokers. If you take a look at Robinhood, for example, it makes its money in crypto and in options. And very, very, very much less in S&P 500 stocks. So if you take a look at where they disclose they make their money, it's crypto securities where there's huge, huge volatility and huge spreads and, and no best execution obligation. It's options where there's, again, big volatility, very wide spreads, and it's not clear how to enforce those best execution obligations. And then outside of the S&P 500 stocks. And so that's where the money scheme is. That's where the money is to be made. And so if you line that up with other market participants who say, let's do this. So I'll look at my, my nephew, my poor nephew that I pick on all the time. He, he wanted to trade a stock, but a stock that's low dollar value, right? And he also, notwithstanding the fact that he's early 20s and has almost no money, right? He was given options trading access. So for a very low dollar amount, he could actually get significant exposure to a stock price move. That's one other thing that he's encouraged to do that, right? Because if I can trade for a couple of dollars on an option, but have a significant play, that's much more valuable to him than saying, I'm going to buy one-tenth of a share of this $20 stock. And so the incentive for him is to also trade more volatile, low-dollar stocks and options. So everybody's kind of aligned, right? The finances mm -hmm. of the market maker, the finances of the broker, and the finance of what I would call my nephew. And so they're all lined up to want to trade these lower dollar, higher volatility uh, stocks and, and some options. And then when you feed into that 
a handful of folks saying, let's let's make our statement with this stock or that stock through whatever Twitter or Reddit. One of the things I think we are going to see in an area that that I think you, you folks will both have to wrestle with is those who are registered securities professionals, broker dealers, investment advisors, and others who are engaged in sort of encouraging trading by other folks are likely to find themselves in trouble with the commission. You know, the SEC is starting to dig in and saying, you know, are you involved? And we've started to see some of those cases. And I think we'll see more of those from FINRA as well. It, yeah, it's a great point. It's actually uh, something we're going to be taking up on the next episode of this podcast with uh, Professor James Tierney, who's, who's going to be visiting us from Nebraska. So yeah, important questions. I mean, I, I like that you're you're sort of looking forward to um, potential solutions here, Ty. I mean, I do feel like it's important that you point out how everyone's incentives or interests are are aligned. You know, you you might not assume that that is true if you're just catching snippets of the news, right? Um, but I agree with you. Now, now maybe we could argue whether or not the you know the incentive structure is appropriately calibrated, right? But it does seem like everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction. In that context, I feel like, you know, payment for order flow has kind of become like the whipping boy and and maybe unnecessarily so. Maybe there are other things you could do to resolve this. Um, maybe that's greater transparency in terms of conflicts or interest or where the fees roll out, you know, things that we've seen like in the form CRS or the reg BI context. But why don't you tell us, you've hinted at this, like change may be in the wind. You mentioned a couple bills in the House and Senate are we moving towards some potential regulatory solves, uh, and and do you like them? Yeah. Well, first off, come on, man. On the payment for order flow, let's let's be let's be really clear. You have a broker. Their obligation. It's a fiduciary obligation. It says their job is to try to get you the best price. That's it. Payment for order flow says the someone, be it an exchange in an exchange rebate or alternatively a market maker like Citadel, is paying for your broker for the privilege to interact with your order. And as it turns out, the broker's keeping the money. In every other context, we call that either a bribe or a kickback. Let's be clear, right? By the way, the best execution duty is a fiduciary duty. You can't disclose it away. They're obligated to get you the best price. They can't say, hey, I'm not going to give you the best price because I feel like, you know, we're just not going to charge you a commission. That's cool and all. That's just not the law. As it turns out, FINRA has clarified this point because apparently some market participants decided that they didn't really feel like following that. So on June 23rd of this year, not surprising after all of this, they also said, hey, you have to get the best price. You can't, in your negotiations of payment for order flow, be trading off what we'll call price improvement versus your own payment. I'll tell you, as someone who used to negotiate contracts, guess what? A lot of retail brokers were saying, all right, I'm going to keep more payment for order flow for myself and give my customer less price improvement. And others were saying, I'll give my customer more price improvement and I'll keep less for myself. Now, mind you, there are brokers who don't accept any payment for order flow and also, by the way, charge $0 commissions. So it's not like, you know, we need to have uh, no payment for order flow to have $0 commissions. So let's let's start with that a little bit. Now, what do we think the payment for order flow, it, it's not just a retail phenomenon. I mean, the reason why I care about it is I have institutional investors. I'm not here to represent the the... Uh, apes. That's not, I don't know apes. I've, a couple have reached out to me on Twitter because they read some of the things we write, including some court filings recently. But one thing I do know is that pension funds end up paying a lot more when they can't interact with the marketplace, that their trading costs are going up because payment for order flow for retail traders is segmenting orders away from them. Let's think about how market makers make their money. They have to pay for the order flow, right? So they're paying a retail broker for the order flow. They have to buy the stock. They have to sell the stock, right? At whatever that price is. 
And in the between, they have to pay for the order flow, pay for price improvement, and pay for the most sophisticated trading systems God ever put on this planet, right? That's expensive. Engineers are expensive. Sophisticated systems that trade in nanoseconds are expensive. And yet somehow we're going to say they got the best price for their customer. Well, how did they get the best price? Because couldn't, wouldn't the price that they themselves got be the best price, right? If they're buying and they're turning around and selling to a customer and they have all of those expenses in the middle, can't we get the customer the price that they got it at, right? Wouldn't that, cutting out that middleman, wouldn't that get the customer a better price? Now I'm going to talk about what I think the commission is focused on. I think the commission is focused on the segmentation in the market, right? We have retail orders. Almost none of them ever are executed on exchange. And then we have institutional orders, right? And so the twain shall never beat, or very, very rarely. We have concentration. So, you know, one thing I think that was interesting about Citadel is in one day, they executed more orders than the entire market had executed on average the year earlier. Citadel is a huge player. A handful of market makers, basically really two, are dominating the retail space. So we have a concentration concern. We have this thing, what I'll call the best execution concern, which is your broker has a duty to get you the best price, and they're generally not, right? And they're certainly being paid in some instances to uh, route to somebody who probably isn't giving you the best price an awful lot of the time. So then we also have metrics. This is best execution. It's all about best prices. So how do you know what the best price is? The commission, I think, has a lot of work to do in terms of updating the disclosures and the statistics for prices. So I think that the, the SEC is focused on the segmentation issues, the concentration issues, best execution more broadly. Not, so much, not even so much payment for order flow. You could eliminate payment for order flow by, frankly, making it so brokers had to route to whoever was getting the best prices. And by the way, they had to do that on an order by order by order basis. If you did that and you improve the statistics so that we actually know what truly is the best price, the profitability of payment for order flow would nearly evaporate. And the, certainly the existence of it as we see it today uh, would be fundamentally changed. I guess my question I keep coming back to, Ty, and, and we're getting into like a lot of these uh, Kurt's favorite wonky uh, oh market plumbing <laughs> issues here. And and GameStop and AMC, I think, have brought all of those to light. But one of the questions I always uh, you know come back to in my mind is, who gets hurt? Who is injured, right? Who is who is defrauded or, or who is, is losing out in GameStop, you know, w with that trading, right? I, you can go to Wall Street Bets and look at the um, the losses that people are putting up to show how strong their diamond hands are, mm -hmm. right? That's not someone who's not understanding or at least not posturing as a way that they, they feel they didn't get the best X price for their GameStop shares traded. So I don't know if there's a, a large shareholder base out there that feels they're being injured by by GameStop or, or if you have comments about that, yeah. you know, I'd love to love to, to take, get your take. Yeah, so the injuries are actually a couple of different folks. Like if you're focused on whether or not my nephew trading his... By the way, we need to start negotiating to get him on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. We want if, him to, we, his retorts yeah, if to, we, to your if, analysis. If, if, you know, he he recognizes the conflict of interest, but for him, trading a single share of stock or fraction of a share of stock, it's actually is largely immaterial. What's interesting is when you start looking at what the payment for order flow is, both in aggregate, but also for larger dollar traders, uh, retail traders, they become very, very, very significant. As it turns out, a penny a share or half a penny a share, the difference between a midpoint and a tenth of a penny better than the best listed price can be huge. We can be talking about 10 cents a share or 20 cents a share in difference. And if you're trading 100 shares or 200 shares or 300 shares, that adds up pretty quickly. And it frankly, very quickly overwhelms whatever your $6 commission might have otherwise been in, a, in an old world. But frankly, that's only a tiny fraction of the injury. The injury here is also the rest of the market. As it turns out, investors generally think the market is rigged when you see stock prices go to the moon and back. They don't like turning on their television and seeing CEOs pump up a stock and then 
not have consequences with the SEC. The world doesn't like it when you have extremely volatile markets based on what is clearly, and I I hate to use the word manipulation, because it, it may not be classic manipulation. It is clear that there's an intent to move the stock. But based on what? Is it fundamentals? Is it because I just feel like it? Is it the LOLs? Who knows? But the thing I would say is that's also concerning. Bigger picture, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have the stock market not to be a casino. We have the stock market to fund good companies that then create jobs and provide returns for people. That's what the stock market is here for. At least that's what we think it's here for. And so if our goal is to make sure there's an efficient allocation of capital to drive our economy forward and create jobs, perhaps giving hundreds of millions of extra dollars to GameStop or AMC or something else, maybe that is the most efficient use of capital. Maybe it's not. That's one set of issues, but it's a big one. So discouraging future investment by folks like me, but also folks abroad right? We attract a lot of capital from the rest of the world. And when they see our markets behaving this way, guess what? We attract less. That's a second issue. And then the third one is the one that I actually brings me here to your podcast today, which is the impact on pension funds, the impact on institutional investors. And the reality is their trading costs go up a lot in this system. And so, well, it used to be that the vast majority of cost of trading for institutional investors was the commission they, they paid their broker. The vast majority of their trading costs are now watching the prices walk away from them as they try to buy. So if you try to buy a million shares of stock, guess what? It becomes a lot more expensive. And a huge chunk of that is because the market is bifurcated and they cannot interact with retail. And the people that are in between, that are interacting both with retail and with the institutional investors, have got a perfect system. They have some people on one side, one set of of investors on one side, a very, very, very different set of investors on the other side. And they get to trade between the two all day. That's going to be a very profitable business. Let me ask you this. I mean, because as we're talking, I'm I'm thinking about w- whether it just makes more sense to have, uh, you know, retail interact with retail, right? Because they're typically going to be trading odd lots. And if I'm a big, you know, institutional or pension fund and I want to sell a million shares, like, do I really want, you know, retail flow to chip away at it? Um, one fractional share or five or 10 shares at a time, right? The, the price then is going to walk away from you. I mean, is is some of the problem that there's not... Uh, a, a marketplace where similarly situated traders can meet? So as it turns out, that's what we've kind of got. What the institutional traders do is actually they do want access to those retail trades. One of the phenomenons that we've seen over the last several years has been the shrinkage of institutional order size. So while I may try to buy a million shares or my one of our traders may may try to buy a million shares, As it turns out, that gets sent into the marketplace 16 shares at a time and 72 shares at a time. One of the things that I think they're very eager to do is to actually be able to have retail traders on the other side. It's a large volume. You know, what we have in, in this country is a lot of retail trading. I mean, that is one of the benefits of this system. When you have zero commission and it's you can set up an account that gives you incredible leverage with 240 bucks in five minutes and start trading, you know, meme stock options. I think that that is one of the things that you could argue is that's fantastic, right? More people can, can get into the market. The downside is that we've created a system that promotes volatility and hurts the institutional investors and maybe hurts the retail investors too. One of the things I remember, I'm old enough to remember, is about a decade ago, some retail brokers had options started to to provide more options trading. Nothing like the modern options trading. You know, there's a reason why Robinhood got hit with the largest fine in the history of FINRA, which says something for, amongst other things, options access. But one of the things you quickly realize is while it's very profitable for the intermediaries, for the broker, for, for the market makers uh, on the other side of those options accounts, 
Retail customers tend to do really poorly with options. They wildly underperform. They blow themselves up. Unfortunately, we've seen some of that in popular press, be it New York Times and otherwise. But options trading is risky. The leverage that's created can be fun for my nephew, but it could also be extraordinarily damaging. And that can also have very material impacts on stock prices and that in turn on on institutional investors. All right. We've gone through a a lot of the market structure here and and talked about where there may be um, aligned or misaligned incentives for different market participants. Uh, But we promised to talk a little bit about the report and we've sort of gone in and out of it a bit, but let's, let's circle back to that. What, what did the report even say? Very little, right? What was, what was really impressive to me is how little they managed to cram into 45 pages. So I think a, a, a couple of things right off the bat, right? Like they they recognize and they say, Hey, the stock went up. It looks like there was a margin call. It looked like that had that was related to the decision to stop some buy purchase, you know, to, to large buys. Um, that is debunking some of the conspiracy theories. You know, there were conspiracy theories about market makers telling Robinhood, "Oh God, no! You have to stop trading because we're too short and the stock price keeps going up." Whether or not those things were true, we don't know. We've seen some evidence to suggest that there were communications. Frankly, I've I've been pretty public. If if you're Robinhood and you're a a a large broker dealer with lots of accounts and you're facing a moment of crisis, I, I think it would be smart to get on the phone with your largest business partner and someone that you, you're doing this business with. And there were obviously communications. So the report tries to lay to rest to the extent they could. The, the some of the crazier conspiracy theories out there about why Robinhood and others shut off trading. It didn't entirely because, again, we've separately now seen other evidence about communications, but it, it did it it did that. I think it also talked about options. And this is where I was a little bit disappointed because they talked about options and they said, well, look, you know, it doesn't look like there were a million you know, or a zillion uh, out of the contract call options, which is what you would fear about to driving up the stock price. That's true. But I, I, I think most of the folks who, who are expert in options trading would suggest that there was a little bit more complicated of a story than the commission told. And that raised some questions about the commission's, frankly, data and understanding of options trading. And so I think we're going to we're going to probably learn more about meme stocks and options in time ahead. And I'll, I'll use an example. What's happened since the days of January and February is Robinhood itself went public and its IPO opened and it traded down a little bit and people were a little disappointed. But like any other meme stock, all of a sudden you saw Twitter and other places, people saying, I can't wait till options trading starts. And on the day options trading started, it shot up 85%, I think it was. And there was clearly a relationship between the options trading and the Mm -hmm. stock price underneath it. And we would all imagine there would be. So I I would expect the commission, based on, frankly, what was a lack of clear explanation and relationship of options trading, to probably have to go back and do some more there. So those are the two really big takeaways I had. The third is is there's no recommendations, right? Not surprising if we go back to major market events over time and what I would call agency staff reports, and I'll use for for my uh, purposes the May sixth flash crash of 2010, mm-hmm. which was a big event for the market. Oh my God, how can the market crater by you know 1,100 points over the course of of a few seconds, a few minutes? And there was a joint SEC and CFTC report. You want to know what there wasn't in there? Recommendations. You want to know what there also (laughs) wasn't in there? Nevander Sorrow. You know, that report basically said, hey, there was a single, they blamed it on poor Waddell and Reed, a single Kansas City fundamental trader that they said was stupidly sending sell orders into the market and just cratered the thing, overwhelmed the market makers, overwhelmed HFT and just drove the market to the floor. And that was the sort of story coming out of the staff report that came out again, plus or minus six months or so after. It wasn't even six months. It was, I think, September 30th, that report came out. And what we learned five years later 
was there was some guy called the Hounds of Hounslow, Navander Sorrow, in a bedroom outside of London, spoofing the markets and manipulating them in ways that helped trigger the crash and materially participated in it. So for five years, we had no idea this exists until all of a sudden there's an indictment and cases brought against some guy out of a bedroom outside of London. So I think when we, <laughs> I think we have a better, a more clear understanding of what actually happened years later. And so I think this is going to be one of those things where you have a staff report that takes what I would call the least objectionable positions they can possibly take, not get in front of their commissioners, not make recommendations, and get out the door as fast as they can, recognizing that market structure modernization and all the issues we talk about is a line item on the SEC's agenda. And so they are They've already committed to, the agency's chair is committed to saying, we're going to work on best execution and we're going to work on market data reports and we're going to do these types of things. And if you're the staff, one thing you don't want to be doing is getting in front of that. I got a, a quick question for both of you guys. Kurt, you mentioned the terribly pronounced phonetic audio for our acronym of PFOF, Payment for Order Flow. You said PFOF. Yeah. Ty, is that a thing? Do people say PFOF or is that kind of like when people say peekaboo about the PCAOB and it makes me get <laughs> get in a tizzy? No, people say PFOF, but the problem is like okay. anything else, it's unclear what they're talking about when they say PFOF. <laughs> because for some people, it is just retail payment for order flow. For mm -hmm. other people, that includes exchange rebates, which is the same thing. Someone is paying mm -hmm. for your broker to route your order to them, and your broker keeps the money. So it's unclear which definition of PFOF you're in. So I always like people that, can you please define that for me before we start talking about it? <laughs> I kind of remember too, wasn't there a um, SEC commissioned a study regarding PFOF uh, a couple of years ago? The SEC has talked about PFOF actually for well over 30 years. Mm. Um, and it's sort of, it's interesting because there's some versions of it have always existed. People like to point out that Bernie Sanders was one of the leading, frankly, the first person to really institutionalize it and figure out how to make a business model around it. And because of other things he did, uh, people like to point out that maybe, maybe there was something nefarious about it. I'd say what's really interesting in the evolution of markets is payment for order flow. And this is just for over the course of my career, went from something that people thought was not terribly valuable. The brokers could, didn't make a ton of money off of it. It wasn't how they made their money. It was a complement or a small supplement. Market makers, that wasn't really where they made their money. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to... All of the amplitudes have been turned all the way up. And so you now have a broker-dealer where that is the way they make money. And so now that is their business model. And so if you say, hey, broker-dealers, you now have to route your order to whoever is offering your customer the best prices on an order-by-order -order basis, and we're going to hold that best price metric, not off of some esoteric 20-year-old definition, but what actually is the best price in the market, right, that you could access for that order. If you do those two things, the current payment for order flow business model just evaporates. And so when we hear either members of Congress, for example, or United States senators or, or others talk about SEC can't, should not ban payment for order flow, the answer is you can, you can end these practices by just essentially enforcing existing fiduciary duty on best execution. So I'm going to ask a, a question that perhaps is fraught with danger here, Ty, but uh, an acronym we haven't touched on, which I do think bears on the price at which, you know, retail purchase stocks is, uh, is NBBO. Doesn't that impact the price at which folks are able to go out and purchase GameStop or, or whatever stock they, they want to purchase? I mean, how does that interact with the best X obligation. That's right. So this is a really good point. So FINRA has rules. So the NBBO is the national best bid and offer. You can think of it as the best price for a hundred shares of more that is lit or displayed on an exchange. 
as a protected quote. That's a lot. There's a lot of ifs, right? Like I put it, I used a lot of words. So what that means is it's a qualified statement, right? So go back 20 years or 30 years and the vast majority of trading is in what we call round lots, 100 shares, increments. And so the NBBO was established at that time and also at a time when most of the trading was going to be on exchange. Now at times we have more than half is off exchange. So if the idea is we had this metric that is 100 share increments developed at a time when most of the orders and most of the trading were those, and it's what's on a lit exchange, again, a lot higher percentages that were on exchange. Today, much greater percentages are off exchange. And as we talked before, a lot of them are in under 100 share increments. And frankly, almost all retail orders are in odd lots, mm -hmm. a huge, yeah. huge, huge percentage. So what that means is the regulatory NBBO, National Best Bid and Offer, is just what the best 100 share increment prices might be on an exchange. Let's just say 10 and 10.25, right? So if someone's willing to sell at $10.25, someone's willing to buy at 10, there's a 25 cent spread on the exchange. But inside that, there might be hundreds or thousands of people who are willing to buy and sell, buy for a bit more and sell for a bit less in increments less than 100 shares. There also might be people who are willing to execute at midpoints, right? Yeah. And so none of that gets counted for what I would call price improvement or best execution statistics. The broker is still obligated, as FINRA has had to remind people very recently, the broker is still obligated to be looking for the best price for the best execution obligation. But what has happened in retail is those brokers have said, as long as we beat the NBBO, we're fulfilling our best execution obligations. So go back to my example. Suppose someone wants to buy stock and someone is willing to sell stock and they both want to buy and sell 10 shares and they're willing to do it at $10.10, right? As it turns out, or, or someone's willing to buy at any price, and someone's willing to sell at $10.10. And they've got this $10.10 share, 10 shares out in the marketplace. What can happen is the market maker will buy it, right? And they can turn around and sell it to the retail customer at a tenth of a penny less than $10.25 and claim that they offered that customer best execution while giving them a price far worse than was available in the market. So that is why NBBO and how that's measured is really important. And it also explains how you can have two completely parallel conversations saying the opposite thing. You can have Citadel and Virtu and uh, retail brokers saying they're offering all of this price improvement, billions and billions of dollars in price improvement. And you can have also people like me saying, actually, you're offering worse prices than are already available in the marketplace. That's how we have this system where both claims can be true based on the metrics. But I, I suppose if you're a large institutional investor, you could just insist that your orders are routed to lit exchanges and, and avoid this problem. So if you're an institutional investor, you kind of want all execution venues. You want light, you want dark, you want you may want to do some, you know, a 10,000 share order as in a dark pool at one at one block. You might want to do a bunch of 17 share orders, you know, routed through frankly Citadel or Virtu or somebody else. So it's a, it's a really interesting thing for institutional investors, the only way for them to see their execution quality, whether or not they're getting the best prices, is for them or someone they hire to buy the data from the exchanges themselves and buy the data from dark pools or, or otherwise obtain it and then compare it in real time. So there's no, the public market data stream is nowhere close yeah. to adequate anymore. That's part of the problem. All right. I think we have, we've covered the waterfront. Chris, do you have anything else on this? Because if not, I've got something for you guys. 
I think I think we've definitely hit the wonky bucket, and I'll save what <laughs> I, how I think we should pronounce NBBO for a future episode. Oh man, please do. <laughs> All right, so Ty, while we've got you here, there is another significant report that has just come out, and I just want to get your reaction to it. I doubt I doubt that you've seen it. In fact, I I want to get reactions from both of you because. You're both long-suffering Buffalo Bills fans. To be fair, they're looking pretty good this year. They are the NFL's best team, according to ESPN's Football Power Index. No pressure, boys. But there is a report that just came out from SB Nation, courtesy of Matt Warren, and it concludes the following. The Bills' record is much better when they wear white pants. And better still when they wear all red. So here's some quick stats for you. The the color rush uniforms, the red jersey with the red pants. Mm-hmm. The Bills win 80% of the time. They're 4 and 1 since 2017. Blue jersey white pants, that falls to 65%. Uh, 15 and 8 since 2017. White jersey white pants, 61%. White jersey blue pants, 47. Ooh percent win percentage and i don't want to upset anybody but i don't know if you remember what they wore in the afc championship game last year yeah you guessed it white jersey blue pants uh so is this uh you know correlation without causation and if if you're sean mcdermott what color are the boys putting on against the Finns this weekend yeah so i actually i'm the contrarian man i'm gonna go white and blue and the reason is we're due we're a better team <laughs> we're due <laughs> we're due <laughs> We're due. You lose three hands like of blackjack it. in a row. You double down on the on the fourth. <laughs> oh my gosh! I don't believe that's investing or gambling advice. From- <laughs> what, that has- <laughs> I don't even know how to put that in the context of the previous conversation. But yeah, that's right. <laughs> Listen, I've got my color rush Josh Allen jersey that my dad got me as a gift a couple years ago when when we were hopeful that he would become the the franchise quarterback that he now is today. So. I'm happy to don that every Sunday. Although, if the game is going south by halftime, there's usually a costume change because what I'm wearing, I think, Kurt, matters just as much as the color pants that Obviously. that our, our Buffalo Bills are as well. So the whole seat switching, you know, got to make sure you're in the right spot and then if something bad happens, you got to move around. So uh, I try to bring logic and, and insight to, to my work as a CPA and to this podcast. But when it comes to watching the Bills on TV or being at Highmark Stadium, all that goes out the I'm, window. I'm old enough to remember... The old Cornelius Bennett and Bruce Smith, Daryl Talley, like those those Bills teams. That's those were mm-hmm. my formative years of, of junior high and high school and, and peak Bills fandom. Yeah. Were the late eighties, early nineties uh Bills. And my only answer is there's not there's not a color rush back then, guys. Those teams were <laughs> some great teams. There's no color point. rush. Yeah. Well, well, since since we're recording right before Halloween, I will point out I saw this very cool picture of uh, Bruce Smith's front yard where he has a whole series of tombstones with quarterbacks' names yes. on them. Yeah, it's pretty pretty <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, well, Ty, thanks for for chatting with us on on some of those technical issues and some of the more fun issues that'll be uh, coming on any given Sunday going forward. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, people stayed awake all the way through. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thank to our guest, Ty Galosh of Healthy Markets. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute 
or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.